Wonder Thing Studios presents a special edition of the Roundtable Podcast. 20 Minutes with Jilly Dreadful. Hello, literary alchemists. I'm Dave Robison. And I'm Lauren Scribe Harris. And you've tuned into a special edition of the Roundtable Podcast 20 Minutes with. 20 Minutes With is the part of the show where we interview the five-star chefs of genre fiction, <laughs> begging them to give us a peek into their creative kitchens to delight our palates with the zest and spice they use to season their literary smorgasbord. Oh, I'm hungry now. That's brilliant. I love that. We were, we're, it's, it's like the Iron Chef of, of, of podcasting. <laughs> Iron Chef, you know, G- uh, Gordon Ramsay, said yeah. less. Well, maybe about the same cussing, but less, less uh, <laughs> violence. Less violence. Uh, Lauren Scribe Harris, thank you so much. First and foremost, thank you for stepping up and being my co-host for this episode. Uh, I'm delighted to have you back on the show. You were you were a guest writer uh, one time, and uh, and now now you're co-hosting, baby. Yep, yep. I'm back at the co-host. <laughs> it's, uh, it's nice to be back. It's always nice to come back. It's really comfy here. Thank you. We we try like to, to you, foster- always, you always put out a, a really a really nice spread and make it all comfy and cozy for everybody before we you know create blood. <laughs> we we try we try and foster a, a very comfy virtual studio. Uh, so very cool. Well, Lauren, let's 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 not banter and bandy any longer. Let me introduce you, ma'am, to our guest host for this episode of Twenty Minutes with. May I? Oh, please do. Well, here's the deal. Now, look, if there's one truth that we can all embrace in this age of digital media, it's that the rules of previous generations simply don't apply. This is an age where the walls are being torn down and the rules rewritten. And dear friends, our guest host is right there on the front lines with a sledgehammer in one hand and a pen in the other. Now, her childhood was far from idyllic, but that didn't stop her from seeking out the wonder in the world around her. She read comics in the magazine aisle of the grocery store when she couldn't afford to buy them, and is one of the few contemporary fans of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles for whom the names Eastman and Laird actually mean something. Now, she had a taste for the fantastic and the horrific at an early age. At six years old, she remembers the character of Nancy, the badass female protag from Wes Craven's Nightmare on Elm Street, as the first female horror character she actually wanted to be. Now, as an interesting side note, she would use Nightmare on Elm Street as the basis for her first graduate paper many years later. Now, she attended the University of Maryland, where she got her B.A. in English, and during that time, she attended several writing workshops, savoring the passion and contagious chemistry of her peers. She was already strong into the genre fiction scene, and she wasn't alone, at least in the undergraduate community. Yeah, there's a sense of dark foreboding there. We'll touch on that later. (laughs) So after she graduates college in 2004, she knew she wanted to go on to grad school, but she decided to take a year off and get into the world a bit. She landed a job as both the office manager for Aerofilm, American Rogue, and Patriot Media, and the pre-production web admin for Aerofilm. Now, she was working on multi-million dollar commercials for global manufacturing companies and the U.S. Army. And then, 
in a surreal moment, better suited to a Kafka film than real life, she's fired. Why? For not being pretty enough to be an office manager. Now, Lauren, do you hear that? That's the stunned silence and seething outrage of everybody listening to this podcast right now. In fact, I think I, I, can, I hear it. <laughs> I can hear it from you, too. <laughs> now, how do you bounce back from something like that? Well, I don't know how you With do it. Napalm. <laughs> napalm, exactly. <laughs> you know, heavy firepower and high explosives. Now, now, our guest host takes the high road. She actually nails it by being one of the two, and I mean only two, candidates accepted each year into the University of Southern California's prestigious literature and creative writing doctorate program. Now she can, yes, very nice. She consults and tutors at USC's writing center, but all the while speculative fiction is still a strong influence in her life. And she's starting to feel very much alone in her pursuits. In fact, other than David Barr Kirtley, who is now the host of the fabulous Geek's Guide to the Galaxy podcast, she didn't have a lot of allies among the students in her love of genre fiction. She's really starting to wonder if there's any point to pursuing any serious scholarship in that field. Now, fortunately, her engagement with the Comic Arts Conference inspires her, affirming her conviction that there is a network for the kind of critical work in graphic novels and comics she really wants to do. In fact, she's so inspired that she submitted for and received a pre-doctoral fellowship on gender and animation through Hobart and William Smith Colleges. Now, it's also around this time that she created something that will drop the jaw of every geek and nerd who hears this. She wrote the libretto for an opera based on the life of Nikola Tesla. Oh, yeah. Uh Uh-huh. A full-length two-act opera titled Light and Power opened on May 19th, 2011 to rave reviews and critical acclaim. Now, among the many aspects that delighted audiences was how the narrative shifted between Tesla's own interpretations of his contemporaries and a bizarre science fiction-esque internal dialogue with Nova, a cyborgian hive queen. Now, before you ask, yes, it was recorded. Yes, it's on YouTube. Yes, I will include the links in the liner notes. You are welcome. (laughs) Now, in 2012, she finished her PhD with a certificate in gender studies. And I think it's important to note that in the course of pursuing her doctoral studies, our guest host was awarded over $300,000 in grants, assistantships, and competitive fellowships. Now, it all went to offset the cost of tuition, but I think it really illustrates the fierce commitment and the drive with which she pursued her passions. So, okay, so you got your doctorate, your doctor guest host. Now what? (laughs) Well, you look for a professorship so you can teach and share the amazing insights bouncing around in your brain. Now, friends, I don't know how many of you have pursued a professorship before, but I'm here to tell you it is a Herculean task worthy of a Homeric epic. It takes a year. You're competing with up to 800 other applicants. It costs thousands of dollars. And in our guest host's case, every school she was applying to had undergone a snowpocalypse, necessitating the purchase of snow boots that didn't make her look like a total doofus as she trudged across campus after campus. Now, she does this. She does 
all this jumping through every hoop these academic institutions throw at their candidates. And after a year, every one of them turned her down. Hell, one of them even said she did everything right and she gave a perfect interview. Why? Well, ultimately, it came down to the fact that she was the youngest doctor in all the applicants. Often by more than a decade, the common refrain from the review board was, you don't have enough out there. Now, this is, of course, a huge disappointment. I mean, she was certain she was going to get picked up somewhere. She even had prepared several full classes. She would teach at her new appointment. It was such a waste to have those perfectly splendid curricula just sitting around on her hard drive. If only there was some way students of genre fiction could derive some benefit from them. And then an idea sparked in our guest host's fertile imagination. She bounced it off some friends on Facebook and they went nuts over it. And thus, the brainery was born, a creative refinery for all things speculative fiction, offering online writing workshops focusing exclusively on speculative fiction as a discipline worthy of attention and practice. Their first course in short fiction just wrapped up last December and was completely sold out. No surprise, considering they had Christy Yant, associate publisher at Lightspeed Magazine, offering masterclass roundtable sessions with the students. Now, the spring session just fired up last January with two workshops, one on short fiction, the other on science fiction fairy tales, and features roundtables with, again, Christy Yant, as well as Amy Bender, Lise Quintana, and Shana. McGuire, Catherine Valente, and maybe, just maybe, CIFWA VP Kat Rambo. Now, that's badassery. And on top of that, she's also an associate editor of Non-Binary Review, a quarterly literary journal published by Zoetic Press, and an associate editor at Unbound Octavo, a new serial literary publication by Zoetic Press using a proprietary Lithomobilis e-reader platform, which, friends, if you haven't checked out, is really kind of badass. And on top of that... She's sitting right here next to me. So, dear friends, <laughs> please welcome to the big chair here at the round table, Jilly Dreadful. Jilly, you're in the middle of a semester. I can't believe you're doing this, but thank you so much. I'm so delighted that you took the time to, to hang out with us for a little bit here on the round table, ma'am. Uh, I can't thank you enough for inviting me. And also, that was like the most wonderful narrative <laughs> of like my career trajectory. It it felt so triumphant. I feel like that. I feel like that that meme with the the Tyrannosaurus Rex, where he has the little like extenders for his arms, and he's like, "I'm unstoppable." <laughs> yes, nailed it. <laughs> you are unstoppable, Jilly. That's nothing but the truth. There. Let's 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 not waste any time. Let's get down to it. I want to do twenty minutes with Doctor Jilly Dreadful. I'm going to set the timer here. Well, I'm betting we'll ignore it, but <laughs> we're going to go ahead and set it anyway. It's good to have goals. All right. Um, <laughs> Jilly, my first question for you is uh, uh, you had written a blog post, and I'm, I'm just going to read the title <laughs> just so people can Google this shit and realize I'm, I'm not. I'm serious. The title of the blog post was Love with a Wild Fucking Abandon or Why Consuming as Much as I Can is Good for My Writing, a.k.a. Boo to the Cult of Originality. 
<laughs> Kids, it's a ridiculously long title. <laughs> Google it. It's out there. I'm telling you. And it's awesome. And and in that, Jilly, you really kind of put up something it, that by the end of the article made a lot of sense. But initially I'm going, oh, hell no. No, 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 no. I can't do this. Uh, you talk about, uh, and many writers do this, we we insulate ourselves. When we're in the middle of writing a book, we don't, we don't consume things that might contaminate or taint our vision uh, of the world in, in an effort to maintain a strong through line for the story that we're telling. And, and in that article, you said, oh, hell no, drink deep, turn on the fire hose and, and suck it down. And, and I, wanted to, I wanted to ask you, how does that work? First of all, where did that come from? How, how does that work for you? And how can that work for us? Okay, so the where it came from is that, uh, well, it's my writing partner, Kevin Moss. Um, we're working on creating a universe and a podcast, and um, I have a lot of references to other things, uh, and he hardly ever gets these references because he is so um, intent on, like, not consuming things so that he can be original. And so we have, like, these friendly arguments and so that blog post actually was originally an email and he's like this is actually helpful and you should post this on your blog so um the reason why i it kind of started a few years ago when austin cleon published this tiny little like square black book called feel like an artist and it's a really wonderful it's a really cheap book too and i encourage everyone to read it it's also a fast read and it just, yeah, it's got everything going for it right there. It's, it's cheap, fast, and good. Awesome. Yes. <laughs> and it, it kind of gives you the permission to remix as your heart sees fit. And because I'm an English major, I got to say one of the most um, eye-opening moments was in a Shakespeare class I took when the professor said, Shakespeare was just a big plagiarist. He remixed Ovid. <laughs> you know, he does those retelling stories that people um, already knew, at least if they were educated in the rhetorical tradition, they were familiar with these stories, so they would recognize and be able to be like, oh, okay, I, I, I know these characters. And then for people who weren't educated, they can they, they still enjoy it because it's still like a cohesive story. So um, it, it kind of gives me this wild courage to remix because it, well, Shakespeare did it. <laughs> so, like, if, it, if he can do it, then I feel like I can do it. Um, and so, uh, that's, that's pretty much where it comes from because I, and I noticed this with my students too. Um, the ones who read a lot, uh, they tend to have a lot of references or points of reference for where their characters or where their stories can go. And the ones who, who don't read a lot in genre, okay, so if they're trying to write genre fiction or speculative fiction um, and they're not actively reading those things, then you kind of feel like you stumble and you don't know where to go with, with either a, a character development or just plot-wise. And it helps if you consume as much as you can in sort of a Ray Bradbury and Stephen King, you know, both say the same thing, and to consume as much as you can because – it's good to have those reference points in your brain. And for so long in grad school, I didn't do that. I felt like I was beholden to this cult of originality, too. If I wanted to write a specific kind of story, then I can't read any of those stories because then I don't want to accidentally steal. 
but it's never going to be theft unless, like, straight up plagiarism, unless you, like, literally take their stuff and you put it in your, in your, in your own story. Because well, sure, even if you are, like, even if it's a homage, uh, then you're, you're still telling that story from your own point of view. And plus, it's also helpful to remember that there are no original stories, so whatever, just, just write and, and read and watch TV and listen to podcasts and, and listen to music with just like your heart open. But isn't there, isn't there, you know, you're right. Plagiarism is no, no, don't do that. But, but second only to plagiarism, isn't being derivative kind of a, a, a taint as well? That is really, that's a good point. And that's something that I did not address in that blog post because I feel like for that first draft that we're all trying to like just get out of our brains you kind of have to try to silence that voice that is worried. That silent editor voice is always going to be like, oh, you're stealing. Oh, you're derivative. <laughs> because the hardest part is to get words on a page. And I, I, I don't consider myself a writer. I consider myself a rewriter. And <laughs> I, I'm not brilliant on the first try. I'm not. And I had to struggle with like this realization during grad school. And when I really just sort of embrace the fact that, okay, I just have to have a mound of clay that I can shape into something later, it took a lot of pressure off to be brilliant on that first try. Mm. And when you have those points of reference, and you troll tvtropes.com a lot, (laughs) (laughs) um, you can sort of start to see the points where they might be cliche or or derivative, and you can try to revise you know, against those things and try to fix the story however you see fit. But I feel like those concerns, you have to try to quiet that inner editor voice or else you're never going to complete anything. Or maybe you can, but it's going to be way harder. At least it was for me because I'm totally projecting here because that's just my personal experience. Okay. Well, what what do you perceive as the the benefit of uh to a writer of, of not blocking themselves off while they're writing their story to continue to consume and play video games and watch tv shows and so on well one there's always the benefit of stewing and i think that <laughs> yeah i think that there's a real benefit to having your ideas on the back burner of your mind and there's something like magical that happens when you're playing like bioshock infinite and you're like oh my gosh like so I just made a connection in my brain on my story, and it wasn't something that you were necessarily <laughs> even thinking. You're not doing diesel punk, and you're not telling about, like, rips in space-time. Like, you have nothing – your story has nothing in common with Bioshock Infinite, but, like, something magically clicks in your brain because it was just on the back burner. So there's the stewing part. Okay. But then the the other part is, for me, it's a lot, easy, it's a lot easier if I can drop – characters that I love into stories without having to always feel like I have to develop a really long uh, back history for somebody because like that was one of the pleasures of being a teenager out in the middle of nowhere you know I just sat in a, with a notebook and I'd be like oh I have this character and this is how they grew up and like I would just spend hours like writing I don't know like dossiers on these like casts of characters But I don't really want to do that so much anymore, unless it's a longer project. For me, I've been way more productive over the last year when I just started letting myself uh, drop characters in that I love into my stories from things that I know. Um, So, like, I I mean, I haven't done this yet, but, like, if Starbuck, like, I just really love the character Starbuck, if I wanted to write 
um, a sci-fi summer camp story, um, I would, you know, go, what would teenage Starbuck look like? And I drop her in and I let her walk around my story. And um, it's like an easy reference point for me. So I don't have to use all that development time. That's my approach. Um, not all the time. It doesn't always work that way, that way either. But it's been something I've been giving my, myself permission to do. And I have written way, I finished, okay, that's the, that's the <laughs> difference. I have finished way more stories in the, like, the last six months than I ever have before in my entire career. Well, that's, that's, that's the measure right there is putting, yeah. putting yeah. the end on it. That's awesome. We'll be back with more of our conversation with Jilly Dreadful after this brief promotional break. Hi, this is Tina Connolly from Toasted Cake. Reminding you that podcast nominations are now open for the 10th Annual Parsec Awards. Do you have a favorite podcast? What about a favorite episode from last year? A story that really stuck with you? Or a roundtable that was particularly insightful? Well, you can bring a little joy into our humdrum lives by nominating your favorites from 2014. You have until May 31st, and the winners will be announced at DragonCon this September in Atlanta. Find all the details at ParsecAwards.com. Now, let's get back to the conversation with Jilly Dreadful. Kind of like using existing characters as an archetype. Yeah, and so and then they, they necessarily change because they're it's your character. And they're going to change and make decisions along the way. And it's not going to be like, oh, well, she just used Starbuck in her story. And so that's totally mm-hmm. obvious. And um, it's not exactly fan fiction. It, no, it's not. The, it's, it's not exactly fan fiction. But there is a freedom in that process of right. creating fan fiction that is it's like joyful and exuberant. And like yeah. low stakes, right? Well, and that's the beauty of of using these of using characters or using the archetypes and things you like already to um, create your own fiction is that you do have your own interpretations, and that can be very freeing and allowing yeah. you to do that kind of creative work around these characters that you already know and love. Sure, those characters are interpreted through your unique lens, and yes. their their aspects and qualities that you resonate to will be drawn out where somebody else might see them in a, in a completely different light. Yeah, especially when it comes to the characters, like, and I, I'm going to use Draco Malfoy as, like, the touchstone there, because, like... He doesn't get a lot of um, play in the Harry Potter books, really, or in the movies. Um, but if you, if something resonates with you with that character, you try to sort of read between the lines of what's going on in his life, and you start creating the things that are happening off the page or in the backstory. Maybe like even on Pottermore, all the stuff that like J.K. Right. Rowling like releases around him. I was just gonna say that the fan fiction turned published work that I'm thinking of is *The Mortal Instruments* by Cassie Clare, in which uh, <gasps> oh, she actually yeah. used Draco and uh, Jenny Weasley as her main characters, and eventually changed the names and used that. But that was the uh, that was how she created the beginning of this huge saga, and she's now written what uh, nine books in yeah. that series. That's a huge a validation, right there. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's and epic. I mean, and that came from exactly what you're talking about. Giving yourself permission to take the characters that don't get a lot of play that you might really love, and like giving them space to 
have a story. Yeah, take the pressure off that first draft and, and off your yeah. staff as well. So uh, back to when Dave was talking about having a few allies among your students in genre fiction when you were in your uh, doctoral program. How did you go about actually finding your network of outside school of creative, like-minded individuals? Because I remember being in university and, and writing workshops and just absolutely hating it because of exactly that same reason and how difficult it was for me to find a community of writers that jives with that same idea. How did you go about doing that? That's a great question. That, that is so, it, it's all online. Like, my, you know, <laughs> there's this really great e-card uh, graphic is like, all of mommy's friends live online. And I think that's, that is, that is like my life. <laughs> I exist primarily online, it feels like. So when I was in grad school, David Bar Kirtley was one of the only people who, uh, wrote spec fic. Um, he wasn't, he wasn't the only one, but he was one of the only ones. Um, and the, the, in my first workshop ever, there was someone else named Alvis Minor who was a beautiful poet. And he um, was he was taking a fiction workshop that first uh, semester I ever was in grad school and taking workshop with T.C. Boyle, who's like prolific and a rock star. And I was really intimidated. And I, I submitted my weird uh, speculative fiction, like ghost story. And T.C. Boyle was lovely and gave me really good feedback. But the general consensus from the class uh, I mean, in class discussion, everyone had had, thing, had helpful things to say, but then when you start getting those uh, personal comments, I'm not mm-hmm. com- I'm not comfortable, dis- you know, reading genre, and then they don't give you any comments, and I was like, whoa. Um, it's so it, it, I wanted to grow as a writer, and so I I started, and I don't recommend this to anyone. I started shifting what I wrote to try to get feedback uh, so that I, I, I could know. Thing, <laughs> yeah, it's not a good, it's not cute <laughs> to change your writing um, just so that you can like, because uh, I, I mine got caught up with one, craving feedback so I could know how to tell a story. And mm-hmm. two, um, I also was craving a community. So mm-hmm. I had a hard time connecting with the fiction people. Um, the poetry people were way more my jam in my in my program because they there's a lot of them that did sort of speculative fiction um, uh, metaphors in their poetry anyway and they were real open to that so they were always sort of my community in grad school and and then also the literary critical people who just wrote like essays on this stuff like they were also my allies so I I, I found my community not necessarily in fiction. But in other parts of my department. But then when you're not on campus anymore, it was really difficult because uh, then you're not on campus. You're not hanging out with anyone, especially if you move across the country <laughs> like I did um, while I was finishing my Ph.D. because I, I didn't have to be on campus anymore. I was uh, real isolated. And so I got to say, places like Facebook and Twitter have really been... Uh, like lifesavers for me mm-hmm. connecting with people who are interested in the same thing as me it's important to have that community because writing is such an isolating experience for one because you have to do it by yourself but two i think that you can isolate yourself to a point where you feel like maybe your writing isn't even important and like you write a story and my favorite thing is like a. Uh, there's a dinosaur monster truck story on, on Strange Horizons. 
And so, like, so, like, um, of course, you, there was. There is, yes. And so, uh, you're writing your dinosaur and monster truck story, and you're like, who's ever going to publish this if you don't have a community that you can ask about that stuff? You'll never think that you could submit that anywhere, or it would, or anyone would even care or be interested in it. So it's a good motivating force to stay productive and an active, you know, participant in speculative fiction publishing too. Is when you have that community because because uh, that's the other thing I, I try to foster just in my own life and amongst my students is collaboration and as opposed to com- competition and being like. We're all scaffolding, trying to hold each other up as opposed to tear each other down. Mm. Yes. Because I see that a lot in fiction programs is that it just feels like there's not, no one has time to really connect to each other because they're all in their own heads and they're all on their own projects. Mm-hmm. But, um, and then, and then you're not really happy when someone gets their story, um, published in like the Canyon Review or something. And if there's like all that weird sniping that happens Mm -hmm. and instead like i want people to see you know hey this person just published their story like that's exciting and that means that you can do it too it should be motivating to finish affirmation yeah yeah that's the word yeah yeah absolutely yeah absolutely well look guys time is winding down and and but i i want to ask one last question of 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 dr dreadful um (laughs) uh we we had uh we had jean cavellos on uh about a month or so ago yes she was awesome and i asked her a question i'm going to ask you the same question because you're kind of in the same environment as she is uh uh, i've always found that if you want to learn something you teach it uh uh, and you will learn so much so i i I want to ask you you know you you have been teaching on some level or another for for several years now uh like 10 years yeah exactly (laughs) decades so so i'm i'm going to ask you what what have you learned in teaching writing to 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 aspiring writers to, to writing students that you maybe wouldn't have learned if you weren't teaching? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I got to say that when I learned how to teach rhetorical writing, and so like, here's a thesis and here are topic sentences. And this is how you, you know, have a cohesive paragraph. And I had to like teach that to a room full of incoming first years and transfer students because that's how I paid my way for the first couple of years at USC was I had a teaching assistantship. Okay. And so um, I taught what is the equivalent of like intro to rhetorical writing. And they give you two weeks of training and then they just sort of plop you into the classroom and you're like, up until that point, if you were like me, where you wrote a critical paper on Shakespeare or a picture of Dorian Gray and you got an A and didn't know how you got that A, um, <laughs> it was, um, it's really sort of like terrifying and you're trying to figure out. You like, want to be able to repeat what? that. How did I do yes. that? <laughs> how did I do that? And how can I communicate that clearly to my students? That was really like trial by fire, learning how to figure out what I liked about writing and writing styles and tone and all that and what to me constitutes an A paper and then trying to give that as, I mean, not necessarily a template, but like strategies for the students. So uh, I got to say, if I hadn't taught argumentative writing, I don't think I would be necessarily the same writer I am today. Uh, And that means that I take some of the things I learned from 
teaching how to write a thesis statement and I apply it to how I teach creative writing um, because it's not, it's weird. It's not that dissimilar. <laughs> you got like the thesis of your story, you, you, there's conflict <laughs> or a transformation of some kind, uh, character development. And you have to communicate those clearly to an audience. And um, then there's pacing, which is, you know, very similar to, like, the structure of an argument. Yeah. And so I took a lot of cues from teaching how to write an argumentative essay. And I, I do apply them to creative writing. And I um, even will take some of the uh, heuristic uh, or brainstorming exercises I would use in those classes. And I, I use them for um, teaching, for instance, there's a real easy one that I just had my students do, which is a fact idealist. And because um, one of them, we have two mantras in, in our workshop. One is there are things that are important for a writer to write, but not necessarily for a reader to read. Mm, yes. And the other one is be specific. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. And so since we sometimes we uh, have trouble being specific, this fact idealist spoke directly to that where I have them take a memory and I just have them for five minutes list all of the sensory details of that memory. Nice. And then um, then I, I end it. And then we, so you have two columns, facts on one side. And then on the second side for the next five minutes, you talk about the idea or value judgment that's driving that sensory detail. And then I am, this is not, this is actually made up because I actually, I cosplay and my mom was like really into making my costumes as a kid. So I never <laughs> had uh, like Kmart Halloween costumes, but I know what they're like with the synthetic like polyester fabric and how cheap that material is and how at one point I think was flammable um, in the eighties. <laughs> and so, cause like, you know, we would go to Kmart and I would go and play with the costumes cause Halloween was the best holiday. And so you get, you get to know what those costumes smell like and, and feel like. So what I would, what I would say was like, I would list all the details of going trick or treating, you know, what, what color the night was, what the temperature of the air was, the neighborhood we went in, the, my fab, my, my costume, the fabric, the color, all of that. And then I would reserve things like we had to buy my costume at Kmart because we were poor. And I would say we went to this specific neighborhood because they gave out the good candy because it was a rich neighborhood. You know, so like you have to separate the fact driving the idea and try to look for where those things are, are connecting and draw the lines between them. Okay. And uh, it was a way to sort of pay attention to specificity. And um, I don't know if, they'll, if anyone will ever, like, use those um, fact idealists in a story, but hopefully in the future it'll be something that they can replicate when they're just maybe trying to get an idea, generate an idea, or if they're sure. just trying to focus on revision. And it creates a tangible kinesthetic connection between those those sensory uh, oh, impulses yeah, and the the emotions that generate them so you can you can actually create a link between an emotion and a sense and use that thematically in your work i think that's awesome that's very oh, cool okay. um it seems like a really great way to uh to teach showing versus telling very oh, much yeah. so very much so 
Absolutely. Look, guys, the, 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 the clock has devolved into this enormous brain with tentacles <laughs> and it's flailing at me. I, I can only assume that means we're out of time. Uh, and, and we always run out of time. Uh, I need a TARDIS on these shows. Jilly Dreadful, thank you so much, ma'am. This has been a delight and I am so grateful that you could find the time to, to hang out with us. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. Oh, my goodness. I'm so excited. I get to be part of, like, the pantheon of guests that you have. This is, like, amazing. <laughs> See, and just the fact that there is, that you consider that there is a pantheon of the, of the round table, <laughs> that, that fills me with all kinds of warm, squishy feelings. I like that. Uh, so, Lauren, we just, yeah. we, just, we just went through more than 20 minutes of, of some, some writer, some keen writerly discourse there. What, what's your takeaway from this? What really jumped out at you as, as we were talking to Jilly? That fan fiction and derivatives in that type of way are not necessarily the evil that we hold them up to be. Yes. Yes. And, I th- and, and that you can use those things that you love from fiction to actually fuel your own creative endeavors. Absolutely. That 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 hit me in the feels too. It's like that's awesome. That's fabulous. <laughs> the thing that really nailed me though is right at the end was was the 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 analog between rhetorical writing and fiction writing. Mm-hmm. And the idea that, you know, your story is is a, a, a postulated argument that you then through the actions of your characters and through the events that you that you drive them through through their struggles, you are arguing for whatever that 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 core theme is and that that really kind of i mean that that's kind of instinctive we know that's uh, what's what's the word i'm looking for skill wise that's what you have to do in a story but that kind of framed it for me in a in a way that's that that makes more sense that really kind of grounded it for me so that was badass the rhetoric of fiction Indeed, the oh yes, oh now we're talking. Now we're talking. There's a blog post right there, at least. Yeah. <laughs> Dear friends, uh, as always, thank you for tuning in. Now look, here's the deal. In just seven days, we're gonna have Jilly back. We're gonna have Lauren back, and we're gonna sit down in in the roundtable arena, and we are gonna have a, a gladiatorial brainstorming session, the likes of which the roundtable has never seen. We have a creative writer keen to toss a story onto the table for for dissection re recombination and consideration so so exactly <laughs> exactly so we're, we're going from the from the chef theme to uh to a surgeon Surgery. Theme, which is actually not that far a jump if depending on what culture you're from um so do come back and i know i know that's like seven days away it's a long way away Lauren, do you, do you have any suggestions for what our, our listeners should do to fill the time over the next seven days? Well, considering what Jilly advised, I suggest they read. Yes, and watch. And then write. <laughs> <laughs> always, always wrap it up with the right. Yes, that. Yes, absolutely. Read something. Watch a TV show that you've been putting off or, or a video game that you've been saying, no, no, no. You feel no guilt about it. Yes. <laughs> Guiltless consumption. There we go. Fill the well, then draw up the bucket. Ooh, guys. Ooh, nice. Write this shit down. This is gold. (laughs) Uh, And friends, I will tell you, as I always do, uh, that you find what you're looking for. So do yourself a favor and look for the awesome. Look for the wow. Look for the oh, yeah. And I promise you, if you go looking for it, you will find it. 
We will see you in just seven days. Until then, you guys stay cool, be frothy, and be awesome. And we will talk to you soon. Bye-bye. This episode of the Roundtable Podcast is copyright 2015 by Wonder Thing Studios and is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Sharealike License. That means please don't sell it, but you can share it to your heart's content. You can even use portions of it in your own productions, as long as you release those productions under the same licensing terms and reference us as the source. Theme music for the Roundtable podcast was performed by the Hepcats of Brotown, Gary Gold, David Labroyere, Billy Nobel, and Matt O'Donnell. If you would like to be a guest writer or guest host, join in on the conversation or just learn more about us, visit our website at www.roundtablepodcast.com. We're also on Facebook at facebook.com slash roundtablepodcast and on Twitter at Writers Podcast. And you can always email us at thetable at roundtablepodcast.com. Thanks for listening.